The following presentation is brought to you through the power of science. Shiny. Welcome to Generations Geek, a family-friendly celebration of geekdom by father-daughter Redweed Pruners. I'm science fiction writer Scott Pearson, and I'm joined, as always, by my daughter. Bienvenido. And we are two generations of geek. This is episode 23, The War of the War of the Worlds, and we'll be talking about a number of adaptations of the classic H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, including the 1938 radio show, the 1953 movie version, and the 2005 movie remake. We'll also mention some others, from the surprisingly awesome musical version to a few of the clunkers that you don't need to see. Before we dive into all that, remember you can monitor us on Twitter and Facebook and get handy links to all of our shows on the Chronic Rift Network at generationsgeek.com. Email us at thegeeks at generationsgeek.com with questions, comments, and survival tips for extraterrestrial invasions. Now, on with the show. The original H.G. Wells novel, The War of the Worlds, came out in 1898. And we're doing a little experiment this time for our discussion. I've read the original novel, but... I have not, surprisingly enough. Ella will be able to talk about the radio show and the movies just as how they're enjoyable on their own, and I'll be able to talk a little bit about how they work as an adaptation. Why don't we jump right in to the 1938 radio version. When you listened to that, Mm -hmm. that was the first time you'd really encountered the story other than just references in pop culture. How did it work for you? I feel like I had, maybe I've read an abridged version, like a kid's version or something, Mm -hmm. you know, like it was pretty obviously recognizable. But um, yeah, it was great. It was super fun. For people who haven't heard the radio version, there are two distinct parts to it. The first part is done like it's a real thing. This is why the radio show is infamous. There's lots of reportage about how people thought it was real news coverage and freaked out. I think some of that was probably exaggerated in newspaper accounts of the panic, but there there was some panic. Some people did think they had that it was really happening. <laughs> so ridiculous. Yeah, but the, but it's very effective. They're done in a very realistic way for the time period as far as how live events were covered. Yeah, but I just don't think that means that if you turn on the radio and you hear somebody, oh, Martians are invading, that you need to, like, <laughs> immediately panic. You're coming at it from a very contemporary perspective. Faux documentaries are very common. You have a very skeptical outlook toward invasion by aliens. (laughs) But in 1938, we didn't know that much about Mars. There were legitimate astronomers who thought there were things on Mars. People were paranoid because of the coming of World War II. So there was lots of sort of natural invasion fears. It's easy to find it silly in retrospect. I mean, I get that people were, you know, freaked out because Hitler or whatever. (laughs) Hitler, whatever. But um, (laughs) I would think that that would be separate from fear of invasion from otherworldly beings. It's not like Hitler's called the Martians. Yeah, but (laughs) but I I I think that lent itself to subconscious kind of things. 
people were nervous. They were ready for something to happen. Yeah, and it was just so well done. The one thing that I loved about it was its use of dead air, you know, and as the invasion was happening and the news coverage was coming in and people would get wiped out, it would go silent and there'd be these long pauses before Mm -hmm. then like someone back in the studio came in and said, well, we seem to have lost the signal or or whatever. And that was really, really well done. And that's that's the first part. And then the second part uh, shifts away from that faux reportage so that you can get more of the story in via the narration of the main character. Let's talk about the main character, because this is one thing that is interesting to compare as we go through all these adaptations. The main character in the Orson Welles adaptation is Richard Pearson, an astronomer. Our ancestor. I don't know if it's spelled our way, though, but... Is it spelled... Yeah. It might be with an I-E. No, no. Um, P-E-A-R-S-O-N. The main character in the original novel is actually unnamed, and he's just sort of an unnamed gentleman. A bro. (laughs) And there's a... uh, The original novel, there's a very important astronomer character named Ogilvy, and so here the main character becomes the astronomer... The second part, narrated by Orson Welles playing Pearson, is effective. I like it. It's but yeah. it's but I kind of preferred that faux reportage of the first part. But I I like how it comes together yeah. as two well, there, separate parts. It's like two acts. Yeah, I like it. And there's no way you could really get all the story across in that faux reportage. So I understand why they shifted. It uh, remains a very successful adaptation. Uh, given the limitations of radio. It, of course, updated the entire thing to its own time. Actually, I think it was set in 1939. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you heard the opening of the show, not only was there an intro that made it clear that this was fiction, it also stated that it was taking place a year in the future. But the theory is that a lot of people didn't hear the top of the show. They dialed into it later, and all they came into, you know, they were hearing these faux news reports from Grover's Mill, New Jersey, Mm -hmm. a lot of the story gets condensed and left out. It's only about an hour long. But overall, it's the same arc of the novel. The one character goes through some adventures, and then eventually, when all seems hopeless, the Martians also start dropping dead. Mm -hmm. Thanks to bacteria. Woo! A little bit of a spoiler there. <laughs> I just spoiled an, a novel from 1898 for people who haven't read it or seen any of the movie versions. So that because was, from the moment they stepped foot on our planet, they were yeah. doomed. Yes. Oh, yeah. And it's got the great opening narration. That's it's it's always very the same. Much... In every version, they have nearly the same intro and outro. Yeah, and I they, love it so much. It varies how verbatim, but they almost all use some of the opening uh, Morgan Freeman words. was born. To read the (laughs) intro and outro to War of the Worlds. Why don't we move ahead to 1953, where we get a great movie version. I love this movie version. This was the first time you had seen it. What was your first response? The female lead just really, really annoyed me. (laughs) 
a lot at the beginning because I was expecting, you know, I we watch old sci-fi movies. I get it, whatever. She's there to scream and then be beautiful. But <laughs> at the beginning, she's all cool and she's standing by the meteor and she's taking a cigarette out of her purse. And she's like, oh, yes, I went to college for science science and I'm a science professor over at science college. <laughs> and it's very, oh, wow, super cool. And then anything, anytime anything happens, she loses her mind and somebody has to like punch her in the face <laughs> snap out of it, it oh is, my god it is unfortunately one of the prime examples of the misuse of female characters and it's like i don't even remember other sci-fi movies being this bad like well, i could barely watch her a lot of them are pretty bad but but yeah this one it's 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 so disappointing because it's such a great movie it's so well designed the look of the martian craft i i love the look of the aliens i love uh, so much of it is such a great adaptation. They made a lot of changes, and once again, they updated it. So it's set in the 50s in the United States, and yet they did some great stuff with the use of bringing in the atomic bomb, and, and I really enjoyed that. But after introducing her as this strong kind of science geek, she's so excited to meet Clayton Forrester, who's yeah. the lead in he, in this one. And then she does nothing but scream and freak out the whole rest of the time. Oh it's uh, very annoying. It's, but I can't even describe how much she loses her mind. Yeah. And there was the one time where nothing was even happening. It was like the priest was walking through no man's land and nothing was happening. But she like freaked out and it was silent except for the guy saying whatever mm -hmm. prayer. And they're in the dugout and she just starts screaming. And they're like, stop, stop it. Well, that was her <laughs> uncle and she knew yeah, that he was walking she, to his death. Yeah, but, but she flipped yeah, again. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the uh, points of similarities and differences here. So the radio version had Richard Pearson, the astronomer. Now the 53 movie has Clayton Forrester, nuclear scientist. And there is the obligatory romantic subplot with Sylvia, the freak-out woman. Uh, now the original novel, the character was married, and that was left out of the uh, radio version. But now here we have a, you know, a relationship. There's that thing where you're worried about the other mm -hmm. person. And they also used a classic motif that's has been used in all three of these, the white flag. Mm. I'm not quite sure why they think that creatures from another planet yeah. will understand the significance I... of the white flag. But the white flag scene is in the novel, it's in the radio version, and then it's here in the 53 version. Very effective in the 53 version because then the guys waving the white flag are also then the first three guys that get vaporized by the heat ray turned to ash martians don't care the honey Very badgers creepy. of the galaxy i love the sound effects of the 50 i like version. when they come back and they're like but where are the guys and it cuts and there's like the three things and you're like well there yeah. they were yeah so you just see their outlines in white ash on the ground it's very creepy of course the army comes in surrounds the location where the cylinder has crash landed and this, again, is uh, very similar to both the original novel and the radio version. And the army that first surrounds the Martians gets wiped out. Another thing that I really liked in this one, another one of the recurring motifs introduced in the original novel, is the scene where Clayton and Sylvia get trapped 
in a farmhouse when a cylinder comes down and crashes and kind of up against the house. That happened in the original novel, except he was trapped in the house with the priest character. And so the, a priest character resurfaces in these various adaptations, but often used very differently. In the 53 movie, the priest makes this very grand gesture to try to make contact with the Martians, and then he's wiped out. It's a very sympathetic portrayal of the priest. The priest in the original novel is not a sympathetic portrayal, but in that classic scene is when they get their first glimpse of the Martian. And I love the scene, even though it sets up another moment for her to freak out and scream, that shot of the three-fingered hand coming up and touching her shoulder from behind. Classic scene. Excuse me. How do we get to DQ from here? That's how Martians sound. <laughs> and that was played with in E.T. There's a scene in E.T. where E.T. Yeah, reaches up. I totally remember that. A little homage. I'm just laughing at the voice I used. How do we get to DQ from here? <laughs> Excuse me. And that would have probably stopped the entire problem. I heard you have blizzards and ice cream Because if we could have gotten those poor dying Martians some fabulous Dairy Queen blizzards, like we could have Reese's been pieces. friends. <laughs> so putting aside Sylvia's screaming and looking at the rest of the movie, what did you like most about it? The spaceship or the atmosphere the ships. They kind of float around. They look great. They fly around. But then there's a little tip of the hat to the original tripod concept because they're kept aloft by magnetic beams, and there's three of them. And you can mm -hmm. see these little three things sometime. That's a great way to keep working in the threes while giving them this fabulous appearance. And they look almost like manta rays or something. Oh, one thing that we didn't mention that I liked at the very beginning of this one we actually do get a glimpse of Martian civilization for just a little bit. There's a great painting by uh, Chesley Bonestell in the opening narration, that, and I thought that was fun because in the other adaptations, generally you don't get to see Martian civilization. Actually, you do get to see it in one of the really bad movies that we might talk about later, but we'll, we'll forget that for now. You know what I always think, though? Even though I love this story... They watched with envious eyes, and it's like, yes, they were envious of Earth, but they waited, waited until we almost destroyed it, global warming, <laughs> before they came and took it. Well, that's a contemporary perspective. It yeah. was written in 1898. Or maybe they were like, they're about to ruin things. We got to move in now. <laughs> the original novel, of course, they came first to London outside mm -hmm. of London. It was 1898. There wasn't Dairy Queen. Maybe they came for the fish and chips. Excuse me. I heard you have some fish and chips. The 1953 movie follows the same high points. Then we eventually see the Martians start falling from the skies and everything seems hopeless. Uh, one thing I think they did really good was showing the utter panic and loss of any sort of societal bonds between fellow humans, <laughs> you know. Are you still talking about... In 53 the... version, okay. you know, everyone's panicking uh, when the guy's trying to drive the truck full of uh, 
scientific equipment where they hope to find something to help defend ourselves against the Martians. It gets attacked and the truck overturned and everyone's just fighting ruthlessly to survive. I think it's very realistic and depressing. I think the 05 version was better. And the 05 version did a lot with that as well. well. The the one thing that doesn't work very well for me in the 53 version is the very religious-themed ending. Is it religious? Well, Clayton gets separated from Sylvia. He's trying to find her in the city. Everything's crazy. And then he remembers the story she told from her youth when she got lost once and she went into a church because it was the only place where she felt safe going into. And he realizes if she's lost, she's going to go into a church. And so he runs around into various churches and eventually finds her. So they're in the church. There's religious music playing. You get that closing narration about how the Martians were destroyed by the small creatures that God in his infinite wisdom put on this earth. Oh, yeah. And so it has this whole sort of praise God ending. I always wonder, well, what about the God of the Martians? Did Martians have a God? Did they believe in God? It's kind of confusing for me in that regard. And the line about the Martians being destroyed by the bacteria that God put on Earth, that is from the novel, but that's not the closing sentiment of the novel. The novel goes on for a couple more scenes, and... So you feel like they're they're twisting it just the, a little bit? The novel ends... I'm going to read the last sentence of the novel. He's reflecting upon how strange it is now that the Martians are dead and they're kind of getting back to the normal world. And he says, And strangest of all is to hold my wife's hand again and to think that I have counted her and that she has counted me among the dead. And so the closing of the novel is about how great it is to be back with his wife and how they both had thought the other one had died. The closing of the 1953 movie is this sort of big praise be to God thing. And it's a valid way to end the movie. I mean, it's playing off of a of a line that's from the book. But for me, I would have liked to have it come more back to the characters and what they've been through. It didn't bother me. me. I can see how it would be interpreted as the ending being very religious, but I didn't really really notice that it was anything more than just an ending to a movie. Yeah. Well, and it's set up very nicely. It is a poignant story that she Mm -hmm. tells about being lost and going into a church and being found by her uncle, the priest, Mm -hmm. and that's moving because he's dead at the time she relates Mm -hmm. the story. And it is a nice bit of business that Clayton remembers that and is able to find her amongst all the craziness so i'm not saying it's a bad ending i love the movie i've loved the movie since i was a kid but it yeah it's it's like they could have turned it down just a couple of notches Mm -hmm. for me shall we move on Yes. To the 2005 version. Yeah. There's going to be lots of comparing and contrasting going on here. So, 2005, once again, updated to the time of its release. I still am waiting for a big budget, well produced, well acted Victorian setting. With Robert Downey Jr. as the lead. Actually, he mm-hmm. would be good. Mm-hmm. I, I'd want it straight, though. I don't want a Sherlock Holmes version. I want a straight version. I think it'd be hard to keep Robert Downey Jr. from winking at the audience now and then, because that's the way he, he is. He always winks at yeah. the audience. 
Lots of different things happened. So 2005, main character is Ray Farrier. We started with, in the original novel, an unnamed gentleman. In the radio version, an astronomer. In the 53 version, a nuclear scientist. In the 2005 version, a dude bro. (laughs) (laughs) He's not too much of a bro. He just... I he's an unlikable, swear, he's a bit of a jerk. At the beginning, they make a point of saying, oh, he's the best crane operator of all the crane operators in New mm-hmm. York. And I was like, he is going to be piloting a tripod and this is going <laughs> to be awesome. And then nothing happened. And I was like, oh. Was like, that oh. is an interesting idea. Yeah. He's a very unlikable guy at start. He's, uh, he's all he's, right. He's not a bad person. He's, he's just, a little bit too chill he's very, for his own good. Well, he's 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 a self-centered guy, yeah. kind of clueless when it comes to his kids. He's divorced. There's that scene where he's he's got this great car, but he's just like driving it all over the he's, like he's zigzagging all, about his all car. over the road. And then they did a huge change. It's not specifically stated they're Martians. It's a little implied, but it's it's left open that they could just be aliens from somewhere. And I think they're just taking account of contemporary knowledge about Mars, that it's not as believable anymore that things are from Mars. And so they leave it open to interpretation. I really like this adaptation a lot. I think it's a very yeah, entertaining it's really movie. Good. It's it's scary. It's got great effects. Plenty of character development and character layers development. to the characters. We're back to the tripods that look retro and amazing. Yeah. Lots of homages to the 1953 film. Let's talk about some of the changes and some of the similarities. We don't get the white flag or the astronomer or the surrounded by the army in this movie because of the way they appear. They come up from under the ground. The ships have been hidden underground and then these huge lightning storms deposit the aliens in them and so these things come rising up and it all happens so fast the military doesn't get there right away. But then we get a lot of stuff that plays very interestingly off the original novel. There's a great scene where they're able to secure a car, a van that works. And in the original novel, there's a scene where the uh, lead character is able to hire a uh, wagon and horse that kind of mirrors that. I, I really en- that scene enjoyed was so... that. It's like because the the guy, Ray, because he has his kids and he has this kind of bad relationship with his kids. He's not very good at taking care of them. But he sees the lightning or whatever and he's kind of chased by a tripod. He's there. He sees what's going on and he comes back and immediately takes his kids, puts them in a van. Not even his own van. His buddy. He steals a van. Yeah, he puts them in the van and he's telling, and that scene, I just, sorry, that was all leading up to me saying that scene was so, because he's telling his friend to get in the van. He's like, get in, we got to go. If you, st- like, get in, get in, get in. And it, meanwhile, his daughter is like, dad, what's happening? What are you doing? Whose car is this? What's going on? And his son is just like watching, but he's, um, and the guy's yeah. like, come on, no, you got to get out of the van. This is, I have to give this back. I run a business. And he's like, get in the van. And he says, get in the van or you're going to die. And the guy's like, what? Come on, get out of the, what are you doing? And he's like, fine. And he's like, Robbie, close the door. And so he kind of closes it and they leave. And the guy, like in the rear view mirror, he sees his friend see like get vaporized. Yeah. It's a very tense scene. Acted very well on everyone's part, particularly Dakota yes. Fanning, who is just astonishing throughout this movie. In the original novel, he realizes that they need to get out of there, and he's able to hire a wagon from a friend, like a few doors down or something, 
And it's kind of the same thing. He hires it, and he's like, "I need it. I, I need it. I'll, I'll give you whatever, you know." And the guy's kind of like, "What? What? What's going on?" He's like, "I've got to get my wife out of here." And so it's similar that the guy he's hiring it from hasn't seen what's going on. And there is a reference in the novel where he kind of admits that he's more concerned about getting the cart for himself and getting his wife out than he is about the guy whose cart it is. Mm. And so that, they did use that nicely in the update. Or when he comes back after being chased by the tripod and he's covered in the people dust, the ashes left over, and is he sits down and uh, Dakota touches him and he jumps and she's, what's all that stuff on you? And he just realizes that he's covered in people and <laughs> goes into the bathroom and there's just this cloud of yeah, dust and, coming and out. and freaks out a bit. Yeah, yeah, that was all very well done. Even though they left out some cool things, they brought in some nice stuff. Later in the movie, there's a big scene where they're trying to get on a ferry. Oh my gosh. And this was not used in the radio or the 53 version. And in the novel, there's a great scene where they're trying to, he's trying to get on a steamer. This movie, okay, this movie is scary. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because it's not because of the Martians. It's not because of the tripods. It's because of the people. The Because people. the people immediately freak out, abandon all sense of whatever humanity they have. And it's scary because you know that's what people would do. Yeah. You know. There's that shot where that guy, everyone's trying to bust in their van. And that one guy, there's a hole in it. And he just starts grabbing it and ripping it with his hands. And there's blood all over the place because he's cutting himself. But he's just trying to get in. Yeah. And every once in a while, there's people that are trying to do a good thing. But you also get to see the people at their worst. There was a great scene in the novel involving water and trying to get away. And a steamer and a warship called Thunderchild that comes in and is attacking the Martians. That wasn't in the previous versions, but... In the 2005 version, we do get this fabulous ferry scene. Uh, In the original novel, the guy doesn't actually get on the ferry, but his brother's on the ferry. They get on the ferry, and it's overturned, and there's just all sorts of... But there's also the scene where... great stuff. uh, His son's running around. Earlier, his son had been trying to go with the army back into the city, but his son's running around the ferry, and you don't know what he's doing, but he runs over to the yeah. ramp because there are people holding onto it, and he immediately climbs up and is helping people on. You know, they did an interesting thing shot. with that son because in the novel, he gets the cart, he gets his wife, and he brings his wife to her, I don't know, sister or cousins or something, I can't remember now, but he gets her out of the immediate area, and he thinks that she's going to be safe, and then he goes back, and it's like, Why? kind of because he just wants to see what happens. And they picked that up and used it with the son character, that Ray Ferrier, Ferrier, the father character, is just trying to get the kids to safety. He's trying to get get them to back to his wife and her parents in Boston. But the son keeps trying to leave because he just wants to see it. He seemed like he really wanted to help. To be yeah, to and, and I think also it just seemed like it was the significance of it. He realized, yeah. well, this is this amazing thing, and I want to yeah. see what happens. Then they did a weird thing, but I thought it worked pretty well. After the boy leaves, mm-hmm. the father and the daughter end up in a house, hiding in a basement with, Ooh, with, that, guy. with that guy, played by Tim Robbins. And that guy is kind of a mishmash of a variety of characters. 
He's cray. He's like in he's the, like actually legitimately insane though. He's like there's and he's see he's you know he's digging tunnels. He's digging down and he's saying <laughs> not <you> really. Know, <laughs> he's, he's trying. Like, yeah. <laughs> there was a character in the novel who was an artilleryman that after he escapes the rest of his unit being destroyed, he starts digging tunnels and coming up with this scheme. And so they used that element in this character. But then they're trapped in the house with him, and that's what happens with the guy and the priest in the original novel. So this is the trapped in the house by the cylinder scene, where you see the Martians and you, or the aliens, I knew, and you I see that. I knew the, something was coming, too. I was like, why would you just trust some random dude waving at you with a shotgun in his hand and, says, like, his Come in hood here. up? Yeah. But then they, strangely, they named him Ogilvy. So they recycled the astronomer's name from the original novel just as an in-joke, I guess. But then there's this great scene where the Martians are close and the guy starts freaking out and Ray is telling him, you have to be quiet. Yeah. And then he finally tells him, I'm not going to lose my daughter because of you. Well, no, it's so, it's so And intense. he makes the decision that he's going to have to put the guy down like a well, rabid plus dog. plus the guy, he even says, he says, do you know what I'm going to have to do? Please, you have to be quiet. And it, like, do you know what I'm going to have to do? That was yeah. so... That also is playing off the priest in the original novel. In the original novel, when he's trapped with the priest, the priest is freaking out and he's telling him, you know, you have to be quiet. In the original novel, I think he just finally knocks him out. <laughs> well, plus before here, that was that. Um, I think that him. was after a couple of the Martians actually went down into the basement, right? Or the tentacle thing. Yeah, the, I the can't machine. At least the machine was down there, and Ray was trying to be like, "Dude, no, do not," because yeah. he was gonna attack it. And he was like, "No, stay down." But then when the thing came in again, and the guy hacked it with an axe, they knew they were in trouble. And of course, really like that scene, was a scene though, that like... was in the 1953 movie uh-huh. as well. The scene where the Martians were in the basement. Yeah. And they're just looking at stuff. Pictures and like the bike on the wall. And they're just kind of poking around. And you're just looking at them like, I, you don't seem like mean at all. And they're out there killing people. Because one of them bends the wheel on the bike. Yeah. And then it falls down. And he's like, oh. <laughs> and I think that's great because it shows they're desperate creatures. Yeah. And on the one hand, they're alive. they're ready to wipe us out so they have a place to live. But on but the on other the hand, hand they're, just they're, just, they're, they're just people. What is, I bet they're just like, you ride on this? That's adorable. <laughs> With the gears off. But then they're also like, seriously, Lily, we, we need your planet. Like, get out of our way. <laughs> yeah, and they do a really creepy thing with the red weed in this movie. Because the red weed is, is something from the it. novel. But in this, it implies that it's the the red weed is red because of the blood of humans. I love the scene where he goes outside and everything is covered in the mm-hmm. weed. And it doesn't look like Earth anymore. Even though yeah. there's a truck, it looks like a different planet. Yeah. Perfect. It's, it's being transformed. Perfect. Yeah. And, that, that, you know, and that's a common theme that runs through various adaptations and... It was very effective in this Which one. Which is very quickly followed by another stunning performance but by Dakota the, Fanning. the uh, gruesome nature of the Martians is from the original novel, that they were collecting humans for food mm-hmm. and throwing them in a, into a basket on their yeah. tripods. That's in the novel. One false note for me in this movie. I didn't like the way they staged the grenade scene. Ray's able to grab uh, out of a military vehicle. A Humvee. 
a few grenades. It's like a belt of grenades. The Martians get the daughter. He's chasing after him. He throws a grenade at it to get his attention. He's then carried up into the tripod, thrown in the food basket as well. And he grabs a couple of the grenades when he starts getting sucked up into this kind of biomechanical feeding tube thing. And everyone is grabbing and pulling them, and they pull them back out. It felt like they were kind of trying to pull people back into the basket, but it wasn't really working. Yeah. But the soldier saw him have the grenades, I think. So he was, get him up there, but then he was like, okay, yeah. everybody pull. He rallied people. Yeah, exactly. They got inspired to fight back. They'd all been panicking and giving up, and they rise to the occasion. But what I didn't like about the staging was they pull him back out, and then he spits a couple of grenade pins out of his mouth. I thought that was cool. But it implies then that he pulled the pins with his teeth. Yeah. That's a common thing that's shown in movies, but grenade pins are made to be pulled out with your fingers. <laughs> and you, Are they like really tough to pull? Yeah. It's... it's. I think he could have... I didn't like that, and it also just, it would have been He had so... to, because one of his arms was being held by all the people, and yeah. the other arm with the grenades is inside, but see, so it's like... I would have just staged it that they were holding him by his foot, so that he would have had both hands, and then you could have gotten around the awkward cliche of pulling the grenade pin with his teeth. I feel like if you're getting sucked into a tripod, you could probably pull a grenade thing, like if you clamp down. But it's such a cliche, and and he's just a guy. He's not, you know, he, he kind of turned into I'm super movie god Tom Cruise in that scene, was, a little was, bit. I think it was alright. I thought it, it was, was alright. I'd, I'd buy it. It's on the edge. I'd buy it. And if if they had I just, mean, I've never pulled the pin out of a grenade with my hand, much less my teeth, but they I'd had, buy it. If they had just not had him pull it out with his teeth. Because I mean, he spat him out, and I was like, wait, what? And then I was like, oh, man. I was like, oh, that's so hardcore. So the grenades detonate. The and tripod kind of trips, the, falls the, over. Falls over. They all escape. He grabs up his girl, and she has this moment where she looks at him, and you can tell she's thinking... Holy crap, Dad just took out a Martian. Yeah. You know, there's this moment so, between because, them. And it, she's so great because before that, she was catatonic. She's in the ship and she's just sitting there like, no. I really like what they did with the character arcs. You always have to have the arc. What's the personal journey? You don't just want to have him in an action movie. You give him the personal journey. And so they added all this backstory about he's divorced and he's got the kids and he doesn't relate to them and he's a bad dad and he's put in this situation where he has to rise to the occasion to protect his kids and he's trying his best, still often failing. There's a hilarious and awkward scene where he tries to make them peanut butter sandwiches. It's all that he can think of to do. You see him continuing to try and starting to get it right. He mimics his son because the siblings seem to be pretty close. He starts to mimic him, but he does it wrong, and then yeah. it's just awkward. And we're talking about this movie much longer than the previous things, because it's a longer movie. It has more elements to it, much more layered characters, like you said. He has to bring the heirs to the throne of Rohan back to Eowyn. <laughs> That's all I think when I see her. I'm just like, okay, so Dakota Fanning's a little girl that rode in with her brother on the horse and uh, <laughs> Eowyn's, but it's in it's like modern modern Lord of the Rings. But then we have to talk about one of the best cameos in the history of cinema <laughs> when he successfully returns the daughter to the mother at her parents. Her parents come out. And it's the same actors who played Clayton and Sylvia in the 1953 movie. Cutching. And it's it's 
fabulous. We've gone through 1938 radio, 1953 mm-hmm. movie, and mm-hmm. 2005 movie. Mm-hmm. So all three of those together, what was your favorite? What was your least favorite? What do you think? I really liked the 2005 mm-hmm. movie. I really liked it. And it like almost pains me to say that I like a remake more than the original, but <laughs> I really liked it. It's, a, it's really well done. And there's nothing in it that really leaps out as something as awkward as the female performance in the 1953 version has become dated. You know, that's a sour note that keeps getting hit throughout that 1953 movie. And the radio version is great, but, you know, in some ways it's kind of unfair to play a movie against a radio version because they're just so different. But I I really do love those, particularly those opening scenes of the original, of of the radio version. Let's move on to the musical, the strangest thing you could ever imagine. It's kind of a cross between a musical and a radio show, is what it is. Yeah, it's... It's a lot of talking and then instrumental, and the music is amazing. Narration by the fabulous Richard Burton, playing the lead character, who once again is just... He's unnamed, he's a journalist. His wife is already away in this one. He doesn't bring her away like he does in the novel. But Ogilvy the astronomer is there. The army surrounds the first cylinder. It's set in Victorian times. The Thunderchild sequence is there, as in the original novel. It really follows the original novel quite closely. But then it's uh, part reading, part musical. A couple of songs. I still music. want like the hills are alive with the sound of tripods. <laughs> when I first I want, heard like, legitimate musical. When I first heard this was being made, I just thought it was the most ridiculous idea I'd ever heard. A rock opera version of War of the Worlds. You got to be kidding me. But no, you're immediately as soon as you hear like the first couple notes, and you're immediately like boogieing. Yeah, I just I just love it. Jeff Wayne's musical version of The War of the Worlds is the full title. Check it out. Track it down and check it and out. And the best musicals are the ones where it's like, what? You want to turn this into a musical? Like Les Mis, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. It's all just like, what? <laughs> but yeah. that's how you know it it's going to be good. Because musicals are ridiculous in their own Although way. the final scene of the musical doesn't work for me. They do an epilogue after the death of the Martians in Victorian times. They do an epilogue that's set in contemporary, the contemporary time of when the album came out. And a probe is on its way to Mars. And then NASA loses contact with the probe. Dun, dun, dun. And they don't know what's going on. And they're trying to talk to other stations around the globe. Are you picking this up? And they start losing contact with people. And no one knows what's going on. And that leads us <laughs> into the two-season TV series. Because if Mars invaded Earth, whether it was in 1898 or 1953, people would remember. <laughs> yeah, it's like some sort of global thing. Everybody decided to not ever talk about it again. It's like everyone's the Dursleys. <laughs> In the musical version, when they lose contact with the Mars probe, the guy doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't all suddenly say, wait a minute, maybe this was like when the Martians came and Only invaded... it's like the Dursleys times a thousand yeah. because they like acknowledge that something's going on. In 
1988, there was a TV series that was spun off of the 1953 movie. And it was a plot point in there that there had been a a global government cover-up and that the population of the Earth had selective amnesia. So it's like no one really remembered. Yeah, everybody just psyched out. That... The Martians had invaded us just 35 years before. I think if Martians invaded us, there'd be a weird part of me that was happy. I'd be like, yeah, (laughs) man, I knew it. And then I'd be like, wait, we got to go, though. (laughs) One cool thing about the TV series was that Anne Robinson, who portrayed Sylvia in the 53 movie, was back as the same character. That was kind of a nice connection. And they also made the main character, who was a scientist, was the adoptive son of Clayton Forrester from the 53 movie. That was cool. But yeah, there, there was so much retconning they had to do. They retconned that the aliens didn't really die. They went into suspended animation. They retconned that they really weren't originally from Mars. They were from some other planet. There was too many retcons. They weren't very believable. And the show never quite found where it wanted to go. It, when it came back for a second season, it was heavily rebooted with uh, some main characters getting killed and and so there was cast changes and it was like leaped ahead a little bit in the future it was kind of a lost production never found what it wanted to be maybe we should talk about some of the very unfortunate versions (laughs) that i didn't even feel like i could even make you watch them for the purposes of this podcast Thank you. (laughs) There was a flurry of movies when everyone knew that Steven Spielberg was making his big budget version. Two low budget versions were rushed out. So there were actually three adaptations of War of the Worlds that came out in 2005. If Spielberg announces that he's doing something, I think you can pretty much throw away whatever (laughs) hopes you had to make your own version because he's just going to, like, dominate the field at this point. Yeah, but they knew they could rush him out and get him out first and and get free publicity from from Spielberg, basically. So one of them was an update set in contemporary times, moved to America, starring C. Thomas Howell, and it was called H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. The main character was a scientist, and they named him George Herbert. The H.G. of H.G. Wells stands for Herbert George, so they named their character George Herbert. It was kind of low budget, and, and they tried. Did they? They gave him a... They had, he had a son that he was trying to protect, but he made very strange choices. <laughs> and it wasn't very... Uh, yeah. And then he actually did... C. Thomas Howell directed a sequel, War of the Worlds 2, The Next Wave. This time, we bring the fight to the Martians. So the Martians invade again. They're able to follow him back to Mars somehow. It was very incoherent. War of the Worlds 2. This time, it's personal. Yeah. (laughs) The other 2005 version is interesting because it was Victorian. Very low budget. I... Never saw the whole thing. And the the director, the director loves the original novel. And I tip my hat to his love for the novel and uh, trying to do a Victorian adaptation. But it wasn't very effective. He's re-edited the thing like twice. There's been two or three re-releases of it as he's tinkered with it to try to get it better. But I, I just remember one scene. These people are walking through the woods 
there's a lot of walking through fields and woods. Part of the budget. Oh my gosh, I remember you telling me part about of the budget, you watched it. Part of the budget problem, they couldn't recreate Victorian London that much, so they had them walking out in nondescript fields and woods. They're walking along, and it's a, and it's a beautiful day. The sunlight is shining through the leaves. <laughs> and then one of the other one of the characters starts explaining to the other character, pointing out where Mars is in the sky. And you're like, <laughs> and you're wondering, mm. well, I, mm. why is he doing that in the daytime? As they continue to discuss it, you realize this scene is supposed to be nighttime, but with their limited resources, they never did the proper processing with the film to actually turn it dark. Okay, now here's what we need. 2017 Victorian era War of the Worlds with Robert Downey Jr., Scarlett Johansson, Tom Hiddleston, obviously, <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch as the voice of the Martians. <laughs> yeah, well, that would be one way to go. <laughs> See, what I want is a straight adaptation. Those rare times that you get a movie set in Victorian times, they're still not straight Victorian. There's something they're... like the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies. But they're steampunk. But they're steampunk. They, they're nudging in the ribs all the time. It's a goofball adventure. And, and, and that's a valid way to make a movie, and I do really enjoy those movies. But I would also love to see a straight movie, something that isn't wink-wink. Aren't we funny? Here's what we do. Okay. That's what I would like to see. Straight Victorian era War mm -hmm. of the Worlds with the science bros, Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. Right? That would, <laughs> that's what you need. I just don't think that, uh, I don't think you're going to get a straight performance from Robert Downey Jr. though. I think that. I don't think he could rein himself in and really be a Victorian guy. He was, he was he was pretty Victorian in Sherlock. Sherlock was more like the set in the plot was more steampunk. But <laughs> I feel like if you wrote the script and the set was accurate, I feel like it would work. I think it would, I plus you got to have the science bros. I don't know. I mean, he's a great actor, but I'm trying to think was that, you know. I mean, obviously we can switch him out for Tom Hiddleston any day of the week. So. <laughs> but you got to admit that the Hiddles would play it straight. He would. He could. Would he? He could. He could. He would. He could. He would. The That'd thing is, is that now we, we have the CGI technology to perfectly recreate Victorian London. Exactly. And that would just be fabulous. Ah. <laughs> That's all the time we have for this episode. Tune in next month for episode 24, Sizzler on Comics, as we welcome special guest Alan Sizzler Kissler comic book historian and geek about town. We will bask in his comic book knowledge and he'll regale us with tales of San Diego Comic-Con. Generations Geek is part of the Chronic Rift Network, which broadcasts from Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Please give their other fine podcasts a listen at chronicrift.com. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and, and come, come back, back next time. time. No geeks were harmed in the making of this podcast. Ooh, shiny. <laughs>